Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. The subconscious mind is downloaded with programs, which we call habits. And the conscious mind is the creative program that possesses wishes and desires. And you say, fine, uh, I'm not going to resort to programs and subconscious. I go, oh, well, that is where the biggest monkey wrench in the whole thing is put in. And that is this. We believe that we're going to be operating from our conscious mind, wishes and desires. What do you want? Relationships, good job, health. Uh, whatever you want. That's a creative wish. I want this and I don't have it. So by definition, it's a wish. So I say, oh, that's the, the, the subject and the meat of what conscious mind is doing. And I go, and the subconscious just got programs just like uh, 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 in your hard drive in your computer. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Bruce, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I am so delighted to be here. Thank you for the invitation because uh, the work that you're doing is uh, is very important because um, it's time for us to understand that the beliefs that we've held for all of our lives, uh, uh, many of them are flawed. And as a result, this is why we're having so much stress in the world today. So it's time to get new, new ideas, new insights and bring them to the world. And so uh, your format is offering... Uh, an audience exactly this so um, I'm glad to be here to uh, participate thank you yeah yeah well you know I actually came across your work uh, you know I, I don't even remember how but I, I stumbled up on your book the biology of belief and I sat down and I read it in like uh, two days uh, and immediately I wanted to reach out to you after seeing some of your lectures but before we get there I want to start with a question that I have found has been very revealing and very interesting and that is what did your parents do for a living and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life <laughs> Well, uh, my father owned a supermarket and uh, my mother worked with him in that supermarket and they were open like six and a half days a week. And my father would go to work at about five thirty, six in the morning, come home at seven at night. So I didn't see him a lot, but I got a lot out of it because um, uh, as a member of this family, um, we started working in the supermarket around five years of age. And uh, the very first job was back in those days. Now, you gotta realize I'm pretty darn old here. Back in those days, that uh, was when uh, soda and beer uh, were in uh, returnable bottles. So during the day in the supermarket, as all the customers would come in and bring their bottles back and you'd get this big accumulation of all the bottles. And in the back of the store, um, there was a warehouse and there were all the uh, cases for the soda. And at five years old, it's easy to match a Coca-Cola bottle with a Coca-Cola case. You, you know, you, you don't even have to be able to read. You can just see the images. And so at five years old. Uh, uh, our first jobs were to go in and um, and sort the bottles. Uh, and, and the relevance about that in the long run is that when I started about five, by the time I was a teenager and even got my license and I was still working in the store, uh, well, of course, that was, you know, when school was in session, um, 
uh, I learned something and, and a behavior got built in. It says if you work hard, you can get things. <laughs> so basically, uh, uh, we used to work hard and, and then uh, we would get these rewards. So I got a good foundation in, in uh, work ethic in that regard. And my mother, uh, on the other hand, was uh, completely supportive of education in every form. So if I, you know, it was like, Mom, Mom, I want, I want this microscope. And she would buy me the microscope. Oh, I need this camera. And then, you know, at some point, if, if as long as it was involved with doing something creative. Mm-hmm. So my father gave me discipline and my mother encouraged creativity. And between those, uh, I ended up going to graduate school and then becoming a Ph.D. in, in cell biology. You know, one of the things that struck me in the book was you, I remember you distinctly describing the moment when you looked down into the microscope and were mesmerized. And, you know, I loved that because it was like just this moment of sheer passion for the subject at such an early age. And, you know, this is a question I've asked a lot of people, but I'm curious to hear it from sort of the science perspective. Why do we lose that as we get older? Like, and, and if you don't discover it in childhood, how do you discover it later in life? Well, I, I think at some point it depends on goal orientation and what's necessary. And there's a point where, okay, enough of that play. Now buckle down and start getting serious. And it all depends on in that evolutionary part where, okay, you're not the kid anymore. Now's the time to focus and get serious. Somewhere in that transition zone, you lose the uh, inquisitive curiosity aspect of our youth where it's like kids, uh, like, oh, I want to see this and that. And every day there's like a new, Oh, I love this is my favorite thing. And then the next day is another favorite thing. And we we try all these things. And then there's a point that says, okay, focus now. Look, you got to do this. This is your job. You do this right now. And as we start to get more narrow focus and put more time into the narrow focus, it comes at the cost of all that other stuff, the joy of looking around and being curious and learning stuff. Uh, it, it gets marginalized. And then at some point, what you realize is, what's my job? It's a program. I get up in the morning. I have a destination. I have a commitment. Uh, I do my work. I come home, relax for a few minutes, and the project starts all over again. Somewhere in the middle of all that, the the, the curiosity, the, the joy of, of being alive, the you know, being in the world is so exciting. So um, it's an unfortunate situation, but it's also uh, partly a necessity, but I think we've overdone it, meaning we do need some discipline to carry out whatever we're trying to do. But if the discipline overrides your life characters and wishes and desires, then that compromise is not a very positive thing, as you well know. So basically it says we really want to reopen that curiosity because that's what gives it. Oh, I want to see this. You know, it's interesting because uh, so many people, uh, including myself, will get online and start to, let's say, read something, right? And, then, and it mentions something, say, oh, oh, okay, then I look at that website. That's real exciting. Then I get something out of there. And the next thing you know, you, you started to look at something that was very simple, and two hours later, <laughs> you're still on there going from one thing to the other because of, oh, this is interesting, and it's following a trail of breadcrumbs, so to speak. And that that's the, the cool part because that's really uh, an opportunity to look outside your conventional box. Uh And this is what we need to do, because otherwise, if you have the conventional box, which actually part of my life was involved with that, and it was the most boring pain job ever. Why? Because 
there was nothing to look forward to because like, oh, I, I can tell you what I'm going to do, uh, you know, a year from now at two o'clock. I can tell you what's already on the schedule. You know, it's like your life has already been printed out. It's kind of damn boring. So opening up the opportunity to have spaces in there where, hey, you don't even have to do anything. If you just sit outside in the sun under or under the tree or wherever you are and, and live in nature, disconnecting from your, you know, your structure is really uh, enlivening and enheartening, uh, and, and it, it's, it really causes you to want to know more. And th this is what evolution is all about, increasing consciousness and awareness. And if you get to a point where your consciousness and awareness says, okay, this is what I need to know, and I know it, and I don't need to know anything more, uh, that's pretty darn boring <laughs> at that point, uh, because it's the joy and surprise of seeing things and learning things. And, and when you run out of that, then... You might as well not even be here. At that point, you know, maybe they could put a robot in your place. It's going to go do the same job, as I said, and it's so predictable that the, the joy of the unknown, the joy of the, of the inquisitive character of, wow, what's happening and all that, when that disappears, it's kind of flat. And we must get out of that. Get out of routine uh, because routine is limitation. Mm, wow. So I'm curious how you go from being a PhD in cell biology to, you know, in many ways, a, a self-help author, because you know, part of what drew me to your work was the fact that it was based in science. And, uh, you know, a lot of self-help authors sometimes I feel like are, are spouting a lot of new age nonsense at moments, but yours was so rooted in science, which is why I was like, okay, now I have to talk to you to figure out how you go from, you know, being a cell biologist to this whole idea of the biology of belief. Like, can you walk us through the, the sort of discovery process? Yeah, very simply this, like everyone else, a conventional uh, educational development, and you go to school and you learn all these things, and then you, I end up going, okay, to college, and I learned a lot more, and then I ended up going to graduate school, and by this time, you're getting, okay, this is the way life is from all your life experiences, you somebody said, this is the way life is, and in a sense, I, I was a spokesperson for the conventional belief of science, because I was taught by science, and then uh, when I became a teacher, I just, you know, turned around and put the same words that I learned back out. And what was so interesting was I was also, as a, uh, a professor in the medical school, not just lecturing, but doing some uh, really, really far out research. Uh, and this is a long time ago, uh, you know, 1967. Okay, can you think that far back? Not you, but some <laughs> I don't think I was born yet. And yeah, uh, I was cloning stem cells. Which, you know, today is like, wow. And I go, yeah, look, this was about 20 or more years before most people even heard the word stem cell. In that time, there were very few of us in the world that, that were working with stem cells and even knew what they were. So I had this unique opportunity. And as a research scientist, you, you do experiments and observations. And as I started to observe the behavior of the stem cells in my tissue culture, it became very clear that my stem cells did not get the education that I got because they weren't following the principles I was programmed with. And I started looking, I said, well, these cells are not responding in the way that the book says they should. And so there got to be, you know, at this very early stage of my research as well, is the book right uh, and your experiments are artifacts and something wrong or are your experiments right and the book is wrong? 
the latter, of course, turned out uh, to be the, the real case. And and why that was relevant, because I was as shocked as anybody else, because, look, I've already had this program, the nature of genes and how they operate and disease and all these things. I, I got a program before I became the professor. And at that point, when the research uh, didn't conform to the program, and more importantly, because the research was um, consistently uh, giving me the same results. In other words, I wasn't getting variations of results. I could repeat the experiment, and every time I repeat the experiment, I got the same result, which at some point says, well, this is not an accident that these cells are, are not behaving the way I was programmed that they should. And all of a sudden, I started to go off the track and start looking at the cells, and start. they were the teacher. I, I mean, I didn't tell the cells, okay, you do this, and I want you to do that. I, I would set up an experiment and say, okay, cells, tell me how you responded to this. And so, taking from a cellular perspective, I said, oh, my God, uh, the understanding uh, at that time was, uh, A, I'm in the classroom teaching something called genetic determinism, uh, which is the belief that has been changed by science, but interesting, it's still the prevailing belief of the public. Genetic determinism is the perception that genes turn on and off and control the expression of the biology. And I say, so what is the consequence of teaching that con that concept? And, the, and it's very simple, it says this, uh, as far as we know, you didn't pick the genes you came with, uh, that if you don't like the traits that you've inherited, uh, you can't change the genes. So you didn't pick them, you can't change them, and they control themselves, uh, and the, the control of genes is the unfolding of your life. And if you stand back just a second and look at it and say, wait a minute, I didn't pick the genes, I can't change the genes, I don't control the genes, and they're the ones that shape my life. Oh my God, I'm a victim of heredity. Oh, there's this, you know, disease running in my family. And so, oh, my God, the genes are going to pass that disease on to me. And my whole life is now like I'm afraid, I'm concerned. Uh, it really affects your life because of what? You're powerless. I, I, I can't control the genes. They control me. Uh, and then once you become powerless and you recognize you're a victim of, let's say, your genes, uh, then you're forced to seek a, a rescuer. Who's going to help me? Because I can't do it. And then all of a sudden, you've given up power over your life to, let's say, the pharmaceutical industry, because they say, oh, you can't fix yourself, but we have the drugs that will do it. And so you automatically are sent to, you know, to get relief from them. So my conventional teaching, my conventional background uh, education uh, was uh, teaching a concept of victimization. You don't control your life. Your genes control you. And if there's cancer running, uh, prepare. So uh, that's what I was doing in the classroom. But in the laboratory, when I was working with my cells uh, and uh, cells grow, uh, grow them in a tissue culture, and the cells uh, uh, live in a fluid. So uh, they're like fish in an aquarium. The tissue culture is the fluid environment. And what I found in my research is by changing the composition of the environment, I would change the fate of the cells. So... Starting with, let's say, uh, I, I have genetically identical cells, uh, let's say uh, thousands of genetically identical cells that result from what is called cloning. <clears throat> cloning very simply is this. You select one cell, just one cell, put it in a Petri dish by itself. It divides about every 10 hours. So first you have one cell and two and then four, eight, 16, doubling, doubling, doubling. And a week later, you've got 25, 30,000 cells in the Petri dish. 
But the important point is all the cells came from the same parent cell. So the point is, I have 30,000 genetically identical uh, uh, cells, like, you know, like twins, identical twins. They all are genetically the same. I split those cells into three different Petri dishes, and the culture medium, which is the environment they live in, is what I synthesize in the lab. Uh, I create three versions of culture medium that are a little different based on the chemical composition. So I have three different uh, versions of culture medium, where, which really represent three different environments to the cells. And I say, what was the consequence of feeding these cells these different media? And I go, oh, in environment A, the cells form muscle. Environment B, the cells form bone. And environment C, the cells form fat cells. Well, the significance is, well, wait. Big question. How come the one, one dish, the cells form muscle, and the other dish, they sell for, the cells form bone? Uh, and you say, well, genetics did that. I go, well, no, <laughs> because every uh, cell in all of the cultures were genetically identical to each other. So there's nothing different about the genetics. The only thing that was different was the composition of the culture, meaning the environment. And what I started to realize, I said, wait a minute. I'm the one that changes the environment, and by changing the environment, I change the fate of the cells. And it goes, well, translate that into my biology. I'm 50 trillion cells in, in a body, uh, which uh, euphemistically you could consider a, a culture dish. But I am a body as a skin-covered tissue culture dish with 50 trillion cells inside. And I say the culture medium is blood. And I say, oh, well, then the chemistry of the blood like the chemistry of my artificial culture medium, which is the equivalent of blood, that, that chemistry of the culture medium, be it the uh, synthetic version in a plastic dish or the blood in my skin-covered Petri dish, the composition of the culture medium was what was determining the fate of the cells. And all of a sudden I said, wait a minute. Well, I can change the environment. I can change the, how I respond to the world, which is influencing the chemistry of my blood. And all of a sudden, I say, wait a minute. These cells, genetics is not controlling the cell. It's the response to the environment. And then you just step back one second and say, yeah, but if you can change the environment, then you're the one that can change the fate of the cells. And it's like, well, then I, I wouldn't be a victim. And all of a sudden, I realize I'm teaching victimization using correct, a conventional belief in a medical school classroom. And in the laboratory, my cells were informing me uh, that I wasn't a victim, that I was a master of my genetics because I'm the one that can change the environment. And all of a sudden, it's like, wait, this is a total disconnect, victim versus master. And there was a beginning part that, well, this was just mind-blowing because uh, apparently, you know, I'm supposed to know all this stuff. And then the cells are, uh, the behavior is like not conforming to the conventional thing. And so there's a choice. Well, which one is right? And from my perspective at that time, uh, because of the repetitive nature of the experiment that I could predict what was going to happen before I even did the experiment. Uh, from that point of view, I began to trust the results of the cells that I was studying in the laboratory over all of the educational foundation that I received that said something to the contrary. Uh, and then the question is, well, if I am right, 
about the new idea, then I should be able to test it myself because I'm the one that affects the environment and my perception, which is how I interpret the environment. I'm the one that can change that. And I made an active effort at this point saying, well, if that's what it is, can I influence my own cells? And the answer turned out to be absolutely absolutely changed my whole life uh, and uh, once I started to see wait a minute I'm not a victim uh, I'm a master of all of this uh, it really challenged the whole foundation of the educational programs that all of us in this world have mm-hmm. uh, and, and what's interesting just to simplify the results of all of this is that there's a movie called The Matrix, and almost everyone is aware of that movie. And I say, uh, on the surface, it's referred to as science fiction. But what I acquired through an understanding of how the cells operate and how they interact with the environment and how that environment can be programmed, I said, oh, my God, uh, all of us got programmed. And that the program, which is a consciousness, uh, the program is translated by the brain into chemistry. So if I have a positive thought, my brain releases chemistry that uh, provides a positive environment to all my cells. So a placebo effect is I'm not, my cells are not in harmony. My body is out of harmony. I am sick. And I say, okay, I'm going to change this with my perception. I say, well, what does that mean? I say, well, the doctor told me that this pill is the thing that heals me. I say, ah, so my mind in its perception of that statement says, good, Bruce, take this pill because we're going to heal ourselves. I take the pill. I get better. And then find out from the physician, oh, yeah, that was just a sugar pill. I go, yeah, uh, we're all familiar with that now. It's called placebo effect. Yeah, but what does it mean? I say, oh, the placebo effect simply means this. Your perception of belief is controlling the outcome. I healed myself with the belief that I was healing myself. And I say, and it works, uh, and this is, uh, people are familiar with placebo effect, but more importantly, uh, the placebo effect is, is focused on having a positive belief. Nobody talked about, well, what about a negative belief? And when I started to get into it, it's like, oh, my God, there's actually a word for it. It's called the nocebo effect. I say, what is the significance? The positive belief and the no, the negative belief, they're equally powerful in controlling your life. But the basic difference is, while the positive belief will create a more positive aspect to your life, a negative belief uh, instead of healing you, a negative belief can actually cause any illness on this planet, and a negative belief can actually kill you. Uh, so basically, it says, oh my God, everyone talks about positive beliefs, placebo effect, and recognizes it and honors it. And I said, yeah, but if they would just stop long enough to recognize a negative belief is equally powerful but takes you in the opposite direction, then you say, well, wait a minute. If I change those negative beliefs, then I can change the direction of my life. And so rather than the old vision of, oh, you want to change your life, take these chemicals, these drugs, adjust your genes and all that, it's like, no, that is not the way to do it. The way to do it is to change your consciousness, your perception, your beliefs, because that is what controls the culture medium, blood, the chemistry of it. 
Uh, so, for example, if you're afraid, uh, all of a sudden uh, the fear causes stress hormones to be released in the body and the stress hormones redirect the functions of the body uh, to get you in a protection mode. Uh, and I say, wow. Uh, so the chemistry of fear is translated into the stress chemistry of the body, which in turn, the stress chemicals in the blood, the culture medium, and then end up controlling the genes. So the idea is, oh my God, uh, I am creating the conditions of my life and of my body, not through the influence of genetics, but through the influence of my thoughts and my beliefs, which leads to only one conclusion. If this is true, and you change those thoughts and those beliefs, then by definition, you should experience a change in your life. And uh, so as a, as a scientist and, a, and an experimentalist, I said, oh, I, I, I'm, a, I'm the part of the experiment. <laughs> Let me change my beliefs. Let me change my perceptions. And the greatest, amazing experience in my life was to realize that when I did that, I absolutely changed the direction of my life, uh, changed the whole aspect about health. I haven't had a doctor uh, outside of uh, a trauma incident, which is where allopathic medicine is absolutely miraculous. Uh, but that other that that medicine doesn't work for non-trauma. Let's say uh, cancer. I got mm -hmm. cancer. What, what are you going to do about it? Not much. Uh, I'll give you these drugs, but I'm not really effective with it. Or okay, I got Alzheimer's. Like, what are you going to do about? It? No, we, we don't know anything about. It. I got cardiovascular disease, and oh, I'll give you some drugs. And it's like, no, <laughs> cardiovascular disease is over ninety percent based on, on your beliefs and your lifestyle. So, taking drugs and presuming you're a victim actually takes you off the track of health and uh, uh, actually uh, causes you to uh, assume uh, the belief that you are a victim of these forces, genes or whatever it is, bacteria, parasites, whatever. You're a victim and you have no power. And I say, well, what's the consequence? I say, well, remember, the function of the consciousness was to translate my belief as I mentioned before, if I believed uh, uh, my life was under threat, uh, the brain would translate that belief into the release of stress hormones in the body. And you start to realize, well, if you change from this belief to this belief to this belief, every time you uh, change your belief, you change the chemistry uh, of the blood, which is controlled by the brain. So the function of the brain is to take a belief and turn it into chemistry. And the chemistry that is released is to turn the body into a complement of your belief. If you believe you're going to get cancer, the, the brain will release chemistry that says, oh, okay, uh, what kind of cancer do you want? And it will specifically create a cancer. Uh, and it's like, wow, we're not victims. We are masters. But you don't realize if you, your mastery is based on your belief, then you really must return back and say, are my beliefs supporting me or are my beliefs causing the problems? The answer is uh, either one of those two is the answer <laughs> versus, oh, you're just a victim in the world and life is happening to you and you're out of control and wake up tomorrow and <laughs> surprised you have no idea what's going on. The fact is, no, 
when you wake up, you're already engaging consciousness, which by definition is regulating the, the chemistry of your blood, which by definition is what controls the genetics and the behavior. So the simplest conclusion is, what are you thinking? <laughs> when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So many questions come from that. Um, the first one being, where do a lot of these programs that limit our lives come from? And what are the most common ones that you have found that actually inhibit people from reaching their potential in their lives? 
Okay. The idea is where do the beliefs come from? Uh, I want to give an analogy here because then it will make it more convenient. Okay. Sure. And the, analo- the analogy is simply this. Uh, I go to the Apple store and I buy a new iPod. And I'm so excited because I got this brand new iPod. I spent a whole lot of money. I get out of the store, open the box, and I'm really anxious. And I say, oh, I, you know, uh, I push uh, start. Uh, the screen lights up. And then I say push play. And nothing happens. And now I'm really frustrated. I just spent all of this money, you see, and uh, and the damn thing isn't working. Uh, and there's a little like seven year old kid next to me and goes, hey, mister, you know, you can't play any music because you didn't download any music. And it's like, oh, so let me give the analogy here. The screen on the front of the iPod called the touchscreen is the equivalent of the conscious mind. Because that's the screen where you can create what you want. You want to make a playlist? Fine. Select what you want. You want to adjust the volume? Fine. You can do that. You want to change the EQ? Fine. You want to rewind? Fine. That's manual control. You are controlling the program. I say, yeah, but the uh, touchscreen reveals that if you didn't put anything into the hard drive, nothing's going to happen. And the hard drive is equivalent to the subconscious mind. Those are where programs are stored. So I say, ah, then when a child is born like an iPod, it doesn't have any programs in the subconscious because it has had no life experiences. You have to experience life (laughs) at some point. And then the subconscious can report, record those experiences. So all of a sudden you start to realize, well, when do I get my programs? And now we recognize that the first seven years of a child's life is the period where the brain is operating in a state of hypnosis. And so I say, so when did you get the program? And the answer is first seven years of life. I say, how'd you get it? How'd you get your program? I say, your brain was automatically on record. So for the first seven years of your life, your primary brain function uh, is not in active consciousness at all. Your primary brain function before age seven is what's called theta. It's a lower vibration than conscious, active consciousness. Theta um, is actually uh, providing what is called imagination. I go, yeah, th- isn't this a character of children under seven? In other words, uh, a child is uh, on a broom, you know, imagining it's a horse. And, uh, and the mother comes and says, I'd like the broom back. And the child on that broom is like, I don't know what you're talking about. This is a horse. Because in their imagination, it is the horse. The, uh, the tea party the young kids like to attend has no tea in the cup and mud for pie. But during the experience of that, it's actually enjoying a tea party. So what? It's imagination. That's the character. I go, and more importantly, that imagination associated with theta uh, is also associated with hypnosis because theta is hypnosis. And I say, well, then how do you get a program? I say, a child is recording like a video camera. A child's recording what it sees. So when it observes the mother and the father responding to their world, it simply records. How did they do that? How did they respond? And this is the part of downloading. So before age seven, I am downloading how to behave and how to respond and what to do and how to relate to other people in the family and how to relate to people in the community. Uh, I learned all these different things. I said, how'd you learn that? I said, 
the child under seven didn't have to actively participate. The child under seven is in a state of hypnosis. So, so the fact is simple. Uh, all, the ch- all the child is doing is just being a, a, a observant. And everything it observes is recorded. So then comes a fundamental issue. Well, then the behavior <laughs> that <clears throat> is in your iPod's hard drive, when you push play on the conscious touch screen, can only replay the program that you got. So all of a sudden it says, oh, my God, we, uh, during the first year, seven years, acquire programs by observing others. And I go, yeah, but when you record those programs, <clears throat> they don't represent your wishes and your desires. They just represent other people's behavior. So your subconscious has programs downloaded before age seven, but the nature of the programs do not reflect your wishes, desires, intentions, or anything because the programs didn't come from you. They came from other people. And then when you start to recognize that the programs which provide beliefs, emotions, attitudes about life, uh, once these are downloaded, the chemistry of the program is what controls your life. If you have a, a a negative disempowering program that you acquired when you were young, and when if you resort to the subconscious and that program is called up, then the behavior that you're going to express is going to be based on the chemistry from that program. If it's negative programming, then by definition, it's nocebo equivalent. Is it's a negative program? You gauge the program, you're going to have a negative experience. If it's disempowering, uh, you will feel like I have no power. Why? Here's a program. Genes control your life. You do not control your genes. And you learn that program. And then somebody says, well, cancer. Uh, And you say, oh, genes control cancer. And I don't control the genes. Therefore, uh, I have the uh, opportunity right here to be the victim. Why? If I'm focusing on cancer, then the chemistry coming from my brain is going to complement the thought. And as a result, that chemistry is going to induce a cancer so that my biology and my beliefs about biology are in harmony with each other. The function of the mind, just simple. And if you get, I mean, it's one of those things, it's very simple. But it's ultimately profound is the function of the mind is to create coherence between your beliefs and your reality. The point is simple. The belief is I'm going to get cancer because I have the gene. And the function of the mind is saying, oh, okay, we can create cancer, releases the chemistry, you manifest cancer, and you find out there was no hereditary connection or linkage for your cancer. Really, it was acquired. It's a consequence of a behavior that is not in harmony. It's a nocebo influence. And so all of a sudden, you, you know, the, why it becomes important, just very simply, uh, a woman will go to uh, get her genes read because she believes she has the cancer gene, which is a sidebar. There is no such thing as a cancer gene. This is very important. In other words, there is no single gene that if you have this gene, you will automatically get cancer. So in other words, I say, well, what about the BRCA1 cancer gene that women are so afraid of? And I go, well, here's an interesting fact. You do a survey, you find that all these women in this group have the BRCA1 gene and everyone goes, oh my God, I have that gene, I could get that cancer and their, their beliefs are all upset because they look at their family history and feel like I'm going to be one of those people, it's out of my control, I have the genes. And I say, well, wait a minute, 
we did the survey. We found this, let's say, 100 women with the BRCA1 gene. And then I say, and how many of these women are going to get the cancer? And all of a sudden, you say, well, about 50%. But the big important question now says, what about the 50% of the women that have the so-called cancer gene and don't get the cancer? We only study the ones that end up with the cancer. Oh, yeah. The other ones, I don't want to study them. Why? They're healthy and normal. I don't need to study them. I say, yeah, but they have the same gene that you're saying is causing a cancer, and they don't get the cancer. Well, there's a simple fact, and the fact is this. Having the gene does not cause cancer. Why? 50% of the women have the gene. They don't get cancer. So all of a sudden, it says that belief that the gene causes cancer is like, well, that's totally false. Why? Ask the 50% of the women that have the gene and don't get the cancer. And we start to realize that the new science that I was studying uh, and that the cells were teaching me way back then said perception and environment involved. So 50% of the women having the gene obviously have different perceptions or different environments that don't provoke the gene. Hmm. So having the gene itself didn't cause the cancer, but it was a lifestyle, environment, uh, beliefs that is what activates the gene. So uh, let, let me let me throw out two words that have been so confusing. And when people put them together, it's where all uh, the misinformation comes from. The two words I want to mention are causation and correlation. And uh, let me explain it this way. Um, having the BRCA1 cancer gene, a, a person gets informed, you have this gene. And I say, well, there's two ways I can look at this. One, I could say, uh, oh, the gene is causing the cancer. Or I can say the gene is correlated with the cancer. I go, oh, that's profoundly different. And the difference is this. The one that says genes cause cancer by definition, uh, that would provoke you to believe that you're already a victim. Why? I, I can't control the genes. I didn't pick the genes. It's going to give me cancer. I don't control it. I, that's what I've been programmed. That person will get the cancer, okay, because their mind is going to do what? Create coherence between the belief of cancer and the body's expression of cancer. And then I go, yeah, but I could have a different attitude. I'm not getting that cancer. and I'm going to live in harmony and happiness and joy, which are what uh, the antonyms of that are what are actually responsible for the cancer. Anger and uh, disharmony, lack of love. A lot, these are the, uh, the beliefs that provide a chemistry that will encourage a cancer. So I say, oh, all this time we've been blaming our expression of life, our or how who we are what we are how we behave we have been saying this is all controlled by genes and i'm a victim and the uh um uh the other new belief is no i'm the one that can change it so the difference is if you believe genes are causative a gene causes x if you believe that then you can manifest X without even having the gene because you just have to believe, oh, I have that gene and, and, and it's related to cancer. And I say, what's the function of the mind? Take that belief and turn it into reality. So it turns out uh, the gene may be correlated with the cancer because, oh, yeah, it's activated when the cancer is expressed. But its activation wasn't done by itself. The gene didn't turn on and say, OK, let's have cancer. No, the gene responded to other conditions that supported the cancer. So 
the bottom line is this. Causation uh, says the other thing is the gene is causing uh, and that that makes you a victim of the gene. Correlation says, well, the gene can express itself, but it doesn't have to. And all of a sudden it says, well, then I can do things in my life to not provoke it. And I go, yeah, essentially 50% of the women that have the BRCA gene are not living in a lifestyle or perception that uh, um, induces the cancer because of the belief. And having the gene didn't cause the cancer. So 50% of the women are totally healthy, have the gene, and, and it's completely different. So what we have to back off is... When people say these traits are caused, caused by genes, we have to say, wait a minute, that's not true. The genes don't cause things. Uh, and as a result, because they're not causative, then I have an opportunity to change the expression of that gene uh, because I'm the one in a you know, non-supportive situation would actually uh, cause the gene to activate itself. Well, in a good situation, that won't happen. So all of a sudden I said, wait, I'm not a victim of my heredity. I'm a master of which genes. And this is the most important thing that people have to walk away from because uh, the whole medical system is encouraging, oh, you have this in your family? Well, you're going to get this disease. And, and then all of a sudden we are you know, put in a position of being a victim. Uh, and then to, to maybe just resolve that one thing, th this is a very interesting uh, uh, observation, and that is this. They followed the fate of children adopted into families where there was cancer running in the family. What they found out was the adopted child would express the cancer uh, 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 in the same you know, possibility, uh, probability, as any of the natural siblings in the family. They would have the same, the same chance of getting the cancer. The significance is the adopted child came from completely different genetics. So all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's not a cancer genes or gene or whatever in the system. The kid came from a completely different uh, genetic stock. But when being raised in the family, uh, the beliefs, attitudes, behaviors that were downloaded, especially in the first seven years, are the things that are actually provoking the cancer. And that's why uh, a, a genetically distinct uh, child separate from the family could still end up with the exact same uh, cancer that's running in the family, not because the genes did it, but because the programming did it. And, and I said, well, what's, what would be the consequence? And the answer is, well, if you change the program, then you can change the cancer. And I go, yes. And I go, why is that relevant? Because people are familiar with something called spontaneous, uh, you know, the spontaneous healing. Mm -hmm. I say, what, what does it mean? I say, they changed their belief and then whatever the disease was disappeared. And it's like, yes, exactly the point. Uh, they ultimately realize, oh, my God, my life is out of, harm, out of harmony. And now my biology is out of harmony. And therefore, if I change my life to create more happiness, joy, and all that, uh, then by definition, the chemistry derived from that perceptual change uh, can actually cause the cancer to disappear. So instead of drugs, radiation, surgery, and all that stuff, it, you can actually change cancer uh, by changing uh, a belief. And that becomes very empowering because it, we're not victims. Hmm.
So I think the question uh, that probably is on everybody's mind is how do you actually change the programming? Um, and I think the, the way I'd like to look at it is in, in the context of a practical example, maybe careers and money would be the most sort of relevant one. Like how do you change the programming so that it leads to the outcome that you want? Well, first thing you have to do is identify what the heck the program is. Mm -hmm. And the reason why you have to identify it is, look, you were being programmed from the last trimester of pregnancy through the first seven years. So I ask you, okay, can can you tell me what the program was that you received when you were one year old? And you go, one year old? I have no memory of one year old. I go, well, unfortunately, you were still being programmed whether you have any conscious awareness of it or not because the programming was affecting the subconscious. So the programs were going in without our consciousness even knowing we were being programmed. And because of that, as the programs were going in, we were not able to filter these programs with our consciousness saying, no, I don't want that belief. I want this belief. Instead, we just downloaded because consciousness wasn't involved, we downloaded those programs. Now you say, uh, so I say, well, what programs you get? You say, I can't tell you actually, I wasn't conscious when I was zero, one, two, uh, to, to have a memory of the download. So I say, oh, well, there's a problem. Uh, we don't have any conscious awareness of the, many of the programs because they were installed before consciousness was even engaged. And I go, wow, that makes it very difficult to find out what the hell the programs are. And I go, no, 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 because science has recognized this is a profoundly important fact. And it comes in and simply says this. The mind has two subdivisions that are independent of each other, but work together. These two subdivisions have two different functions. And this is the critical part. They also learn in two different ways. Okay, I said subdivision, conscious mind, the latest evolution of the brain is the center where your identity is, your uniqueness, your connection to the spirituality is a product of the conscious mind, the latest evolution of the brain, a lobe of tissue behind your forehead called prefrontal cortex is the main seat of that conscious activity. I go, Okay, that's about 10% of the brain. I say, what about the other 90% of the brain? I say, well, that was there even before consciousness evolved. Uh, I say, well, what do we call that function of the brain before consciousness? I go, oh, it's subconscious. It's behaviors that operate without you having to, you know, consciously say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Subconscious behavior is just automatic. It's, it's, a, it's a habit. Uh, essentially, then, Uh, The subconscious mind is downloaded with programs, which we call habits, and the conscious mind is the creative program that possesses wishes and desires. And you say, fine, uh, I'm not going to resort to programs in subconscious. I go, well, that is where the biggest monkey wrench in the whole thing is put in, and that is this. We believe that we're going to be operating from our conscious mind, wishes and desires. What do you want? Relationships, good job, health. Uh, whatever you want. That's a creative wish. I want this and I don't have it. So by definition, it's a wish. So I say, oh, that's the, the, the subject and the meat of what conscious mind is doing. And I go, and the subconscious just got programs just like uh, uh, in your hard drive in your computer. Push the button, the program plays without you thinking about it. I say, oh, here uh, is the biggest problem then in our civilization today. And that is we believe we are operating our lives with our conscious mind, with the wishes and desires. 
But based on that belief, if you go out in the morning saying, today I'm coming back with uh, more money, a better job, a good relation, that's what I'm seeking. And you go out and all day long, you, you're working, you're struggling, you come home at night and you go, geez, I wanted to have this successful thing happen. It didn't happen. Uh, and then the average person sits there and goes, geez, I'm a victim because my wish and desire was to have this. And look what I ended up with this over here. So now the important piece of information left out of the entire equation is this. While the conscious mind indeed is creative and has wishes and desires, it also can think. I say, yeah, so what? I say, but thinking causes the conscious mind to let go of the current moment because you're seeking information inside. So I say, okay, tell me what you're doing on Wednesday at 2 o'clock. If you actually try to answer that question, I say, where's the answer? Well, it's in your head. You say, oh, let me you start thinking. I go, yeah, but the point is the moment conscious mind is engaged in thinking, it lets go of controlling and directing the behavior of the biological vehicle, the body. I say, well, so if you're walking down the street and all of a sudden you have a thought, does that mean you, you just stop, stand still, wait for the thought to finish and then start walking again? I go, no, no. Here's the story. When the conscious mind is engaged, then all the other behaviors that the conscious mind is not focusing on, such as walking, talking, doing your job, driving the car, these other functions, while the conscious mind is in thought, I said, well, who's controlling that? Because conscious mind, by definition, is not paying attention. It's inside. I go, ah, the autopilot, the default is subconscious point. When conscious mind is busy, engaged in something, focusing on something, then all other things that you have to do at that moment uh, are run by the subconscious. Uh, and it's a very power. It's a million times more powerful computer than the conscious mind in the first place. So what's irrelevant? And I say science has revealed that 95% of the day we are thinking. I go, what does that mean? Translate. I go, that means only 5% of the day is your conscious mind available to manifest the wishes and desires and aspirations that you hold. That 95% of the day, that mind is not controlling the biology because it's inside in thought. And then I said, well, then 95% of the day, what is controlling your life? I go, oh, the programs in the subconscious. I go, that the big issue. The conscious mind is busy. It's unfolding a behavior that was in the program. And guess what? You're the only one that doesn't see the, the behavior that's playing automatically from the subconscious. Because why? Well, your consciousness is, by definition, not being observant at this moment. Your consciousness is engaged in some other activity. So when the subconscious programs are playing, the conscious mind doesn't observe it. And I say, why is it relevant? Because... Now, when we review the programs that were downloaded in the first seven years of our lives, we find that most of those programs are self-sabotaging, disempowering, and limiting. I say, well, so why is that relevant? I say, well, then unconsciously, during the day, 95% of your behavior is controlled by these disempowering, limiting beliefs, programs that were downloaded. Why? Because conscious mind was pretty much engaged in a specific function and not observing the automatic autopilot program coming from subconscious. So in the lectures, just to give people a real connection right here, um, 
I, I say, listen, I'm sure during some part of your life, perhaps when you're growing up, you, you had a friend and you knew your friend's be- behavior very well. Be- you're close to your friend. You knew their behavior. And you happen to know your friend's parent. And one day you, you see, oh, my God, your friend has some of the exact same behavior as your friend's parent. And, and so you really you observe it. And, and then you say to your friend, hey, Bill, you're just like your dad. And the first person to go totally ballistic is Bill, who says, how the hell can you compare me to my dad? Because in Bill's conscious mind, he's Bill, his dad's somebody else. He's got his wishes and desires, not the same as his dad. So Bill is like upset that you suggested he's like his dad. Everyone in the audience laughs to a certain degree because everyone has had this experience. And I say, well, this is the most profound story for this reason. Everybody else, like yourself, can can see Bill's behavior. And the only one who doesn't see it is Bill. I said, how come Bill doesn't see the behavior? I said, first of all, why is he playing his dad's program? And, of course, we go back and say, oh, when the conscious mind is busy, the subconscious will play the program. That's where the dad's behavior came from. I said, yeah, but when Bill's conscious mind is busy and He's playing the program he downloaded from his dad. His conscious mind didn't see the what was happening. His conscious mind was busy. So as the behavior was playing from the subconscious, uh, the one who doesn't see it is Bill. And I say, why is it relevant? Because in that 95% of the day where the subconscious is running, what if there are behaviors from his dad that are disempowering or limiting or sabotage, sabotaging behaviors? And the answer becomes very important. Bill will sabotage himself all day long, and he'll be the only one who didn't know he was doing it. And I say, net conclusion, we go forth in the morning with great wishes and desires of what we want in our lives. We come home at night, find that we've struggled all day and did not end up with the destination we were seeking. And as a result, that individual looks out at the world and says, geez, I'm a victim. I'm a victim because this is what I wanted and the universe didn't provide it. And it's like, oh, that's the problem. You had your wishes and desires, but you were not operating from that consciousness. 95% of the day, you were playing programs invisible to you that were undermining you. And so when you came home at night, all you were able to see was, hey, it didn't happen today. I didn't, didn't get those things that I was looking for. And without any connection to the programs that you were playing unconsciously, you're only left with one situation. I'm a victim. I'm a victim of my genes. I'm a victim of the environment. I'm a victim of my family. I'm a victim of the boss. I'm a victim of this. Why? Because if you have no personal recollection of your behavior, then you're the one that doesn't know, was that behavior I spent uh, playing today Supportive or not supportive? And I say, oh, well, the answer is obviously it was not supportive because you didn't get what you wanted. And I say, and is that because the universe doesn't want to give you that? And I go, no, no, the universe doesn't make any decision in that. You did, but you did it unconsciously, subconscious, unconsciously. So your life is not controlled by your wishes and desires. It's controlled by your program. And just to, to give a really important conclusion at this moment about that is 
what happens if you stop playing the program? That's tantamount to taking the red pill in the movie The Matrix. Is there a way to stop this automatic program from running? And the answer is, yeah, you can become what is called mindful. I say, well, that's an exercise. That's an exercise to keep your conscious mind present and paying attention to what's going on in your life right now, rather than letting your uh, conscious mind wander off into thinking, because when it does so, that's when you lost control. If you keep in the conscious mind, you become uh, the controlling person. And and uh, one of the uh, reasons I wrote this book called The Honeymoon Effect is most people at one time in their life met someone, fell head over heels in love with them. I said, what was the consequence of that? And I say, look, this person's life up until they met this other person could suck. It could be crap. My life sucks every day. Oh, I hate this stuff. My job stinks and all that blah, blah, blah. I hate, I hate because it's not resolving. It's not what you want. And, and you're just bemoaning the fact that you don't get what you want. Okay. And then I say, but on this particular day, you meet this person and all of a sudden you fall in love. And then I say, what happened the next day? I say, oh, geez, when you wake up the next day, it's not the same life you've had all the way up to this moment. The next day you wake up, it's like, God, I'm so happy to be alive. I feel so good. I, I, my joy is overwhelming. I feel great. And everything is wonderful. And this short period for most people after they experience this is called the honeymoon. I say, what's the honeymoon? I say, basically, it's a period in your life when you look at it, it's like, wow. Everything was just wonderful in my life. Everything worked out beautiful. I was just so happy. It was heaven on earth. I go, wait a minute. Your whole life up until yesterday <laughs> may have been hell on earth. And 24 hours later, you're, you're there with this big smile on your face going, life is the most wonderful, beautiful thing. And it's all my wishes and everything. I go, what the heck happened in 24 hours? And the answer was, when you wake up uh, in love, the tendency is to automatically stay mindful, meaning you don't think as much. You enjoy the experience and you take it all in by keeping your conscious mind like, wow, this is great and this is great. I say, yeah, but if you keep your conscious mind in the front, then all the behavior that you're running is not coming from the subconscious programs, but it's now coming from the creative uh, part of your, your mind, the conscious mind, which has your wishes and desires. So I say, look, you were a victim of your programs up until yesterday. You fell in love. Today, you are not playing those programs. You are now operating from your wishes and desires. And that is expressed as the honeymoon. So the point is, when you're mindful, such as when you fall in love, uh, it's equivalent of taking the red pill. You stop playing the program. The consequence is the moment you stop playing the program, now life is not controlled by program, but it's controlled by conscious wishes and desires. That's when you become the master of your life. And this is what we all have to understand is we've all been programmed, just as the Matrix said, we operate from those programs 95% of the day, they're invisible to us, and the resulting character of our lives uh, that we perceive is controlled by outside forces is actually an inside job that uh, our mind is creating every aspect of this life. So I'm giving you this whole biological perspective on it, and then I can just conclude very simply is, listen, quantum physics is the most validated science on this planet. The fundamental essence of quantum physics in 1925 to 1930 was that consciousness is responsible for 
the unfolding of the world as we see it. That our consciousness is creating what you are experiencing. The fundamental essence of quantum physics is, well, if you change your consciousness, then you change the, the experiences in your world. And I go, this is now also understood from the biology because it, it, understanding the consciousness uh, is what can give me what I want, but I'm running from the subconscious, uh, makes sense out of what we're doing and supports the fundamental nature of quantum physics, which is the most valid science in the world. Uh, our universe is uh, immaterial and, and mental, meaning there's no physical reality. What you're looking at in the world that you're living in is an illusion of energy and that this energy, which is manifesting our world, uh, can be changed and controlled by consciousness, which is what quantum physics was saying. So not just a biological perspective, but the fundamental nature of the mechanisms of the universe based on what is called physics, which means mechanisms, uh, says from the very beginning, the foundation says, this is a creation. You are a creator. If you own this, then you have the power to change the creation. If you don't own it, then you will stay uh, in a situation where you consider yourself a victim uh, of forces outside of you because you're struggling to get what you want and you're not getting it and you don't see yourself as being involved. So the only other way, place where the problem could arise from is the environment and the outside world. Uh, and then we're left with, oh, I'm a victim of the environment. And the truth is, no, you're a victim of the program. Wow. <laughs> uh, this has been mind-blowing. So I have two last questions. One, I wanted to ask you just because uh, I want our listeners to hear this. I remember you mentioning the hypnosis tapes as a way of doing the reprogramming, and I was wondering if you had anything to say about that, and then I have one final question. Yeah. Uh, basically, why is it so difficult to reprogram the, the subconscious mind? Because your conscious mind is aware. It's like, oh, God, that behavior sucks, and look what it's doing, and I don't want to be miserable. I want to be happy. How am I going to reprogram this? I say, this is where I mentioned before, Yes, there are two minds, conscious and subconscious. Yes, they each have different functions. And more importantly, they learn in different ways. The conscious mind being creative can learn in any way. It's creative. I, I could listen to this uh, broadcast here. I could go watch a video. I could read a book. I can just go, aha, and I can change the conscious mind's uh, uh, programming. I say, what about subconscious? I go, ah, that's a habit mind. There are two fundamental ways to change the habit mind. Uh, and one of them is hypnosis, because hypnosis shuts down the conscious mind, so all information is then going directly into the subconscious. Uh, so hypnosis, and that's the child's uh, uh, experience in the first seven years, it's in a state of theta hypnosis. And I say, after age seven, I can still learn programs of subconscious. I say, oh, well, that's different. After age seven, the programs are learned by habituation, repetition. How many times did you have to say A, B, C, D, etc.? How many times did you have to repeat that before you can go from A to Z? And point was this, it was a learning process. So every time you learn uh, the next series or sequence of letters, uh, you didn't have to relearn it again. Point is, by the time you got from A to Z, you knew the whole sequence, then it's done. <laughs> and I say, how'd you do it? I repeated it. I say, you learned how to drive a car. How'd you do that? I say, I got in the car and I practiced it. Uh, and so practice uh, is part of habituation. 
So I say those are the two primary ways to change the subconscious. Uh, recognizing that there's nobody in the subconscious is very important because uh, most people have a tendency to talk to themselves. Oh, uh, Bruce, you're not, you're not, God, you're so stupid. Look what you're doing. Or you shouldn't be eating this. It's your, you know, and I'm, what am I, who am I talking to when I'm talking to myself? You say, well, well I must be talking to the subconscious who ran those programs. And I go, ah, there's your problem. And the problem is, yes, there's an entity in the conscious mind, you, your spirit, your identity. But there's nobody in the subconscious mind. It's a recording device. It's like a, a CD device where you can record a program. And once the program is recorded, it's now, uh, uh, you know, part of the hard drive of the system. OK, so uh, you want to change the subconscious program. Talking to yourself is a waste of time because there's nobody in there to listen. And if you want to change the program, then you want to create a habit. And I say, well, there's two fundamental ways of doing that. Hypnosis, is, and that's the mechanism that the primary habits were installed in. And after age seven, new habits were installed by repetition of a new behavior. So if you want to change uh, your current behavior, I say, well, how do you know what your behavior is? And I said, well, your life is a printout of your program. So wherever you're struggling, say, I want to change that belief. You put in a, the idea of, and rather than, the, than my life, uh, you know, uh, I'm bad at relationships. Uh, I, I start to program, you know, I am a master of relationships. I, you know, I am great or whatever statement, uh, you know, positive present tense. I say, good, habituate that belief. And as you do that and it becomes incorporated in the subconscious, then I say, well, what's the consequence of that? And I go back. The function of the mind is to make coherence between your beliefs and your reality. If I habituate a new belief that I'm successful in some form, then the uh, subconscious mind's uh, function at that point is to make the success reality because it has to match the belief of my success. And that, that's how all that works. Whether you do it through hypnosis, like uh, putting uh, 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 subliminal uh, programs on using earphones as you go to bed because your mind goes through theta as you start to pass into deep sleep. Uh, so as you put the earphones as you're going to bed, you can habituate a new program. Uh, or you can just start making a new program and what they call fake it till you make it. Meaning, my life, uh, uh, I'm not a happy person. I want to be happy. So I say all day long, I am a happy person. I am a happy person. You're consciously doing that. I say, what happens? I said, repetition will lead to habituation and there will be a point where your subconscious mind has got a program I'm a happy person and then the subconscious mind looks at your life and goes gee that doesn't match <laughs> my life is not as happy but I said then what I said well then the function of that mind is to what change your behavior so that it will match the program and there'll be a point where you won't have to say I am happy I'm happy every day the program has been downloaded and Without you even knowing it, the subconscious will start moving you toward happiness and you'll start experiencing happiness uh, without you even making any effort because now it's a habit. And then lastly, I've got to make this quick here. Um, there are new ways of changing beliefs that are the most amazing thing in the world because you can engage a super learning process and download a new belief that will control your life in a matter of about 10 minutes. 
uh, and these are called energy psychology modalities. I have 20 or more of them listed on my website, brucelipton.com, uh, and you go to resources, and there's this listing of these energy psychology modalities, and these are very, very amazing processes that can cause a change in subconscious programming in about 10 minutes rather than trying to habituate yourself, which may take weeks. Uh, these energy psychology modalities uh, result in a change in minutes. Wow. Okay, so I have one last question, uh, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Something or somebody uh, is the predictability of something. <laughs> if this is the way the person is, then then that's the way it is. You have a knowledge of it, uh, so it's unmistakable what's going to happen because it's it's a habit and it's totally predictable. It's when uh, you don't uh, have that those programs that things become unpredictable in your life, uh, and that's uh, uh, what we need to do is to find the assurances of the things that we like, make programs out of them. Then the function of the brain will take those programs and manifest it for us, uh, and then all of a sudden, guess what? Now you're true to your your belief. Awesome. Well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and uh, share your story and all of your insights with our listeners. This has been mind-blowingly cool and fantastic. Well, I want to thank you. I especially want to thank your audience uh, because those people listening to you have the opportunity to take their power back. And as we individually, one by one, start to take our power back, uh, the world will profoundly change because almost everybody wants the same things, peace, health, harmony, love. And if we all start operating from that in our programming, then by definition, all of this will manifest on the planet. Mm. Well, I think that makes a fitting way to wrap up our conversation. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.